Welcome to season two of the unfamiliar shift with Ariella, the boutique lifestyle leaders associations, hospitality show. This is a podcast about the boutique hospitality community and how its top industry executives and leaders stay up to date on the best innovative trends in boutique hotels all around the world. Each season, I bring my favorite visionaries to candidly discuss new philosophies, ideas, and innovations in the hospitality industry, primarily the boutique community. I'm excited to share with you some of my intimate conversations with these extraordinary leaders as we navigate the unfamiliar shift of boutique hospitality. This episode is sponsored by Solanus, the property management solution for boutique hotels. Welcome listeners. Today we have a guest whose journey is as diverse as it is inspiring. Meet Natalie Jordy, the co-founder of the 71-room Marvel Hotel Peter and Paul. Nestled in the historical structures of a former Catholic school, rectory, church, and convent in the vibrant city of New Orleans, this venture was masterfully developed in collaboration with Ash NYC. But Natalie's story doesn't begin there. From being a co-founder of the renowned People's Pops in New York City, a delectable haven for ice pop enthusiasts, to her adventures as a travel journalist, an energetic bicycle guide, and even a cheesemonger, her career trajectory has been nothing short of fascinating. Currently, she's soaking up the culture and vibes of New Orleans, where she resides with her loving husband and two children. Get ready for an engaging conversation as we dive deep into the world of Natalie Jordy. Hello, and welcome back to The Unfamiliar Shift. Today, I'm joined by Natalie Jordy, co-owner of Hotel Peter and Paul. Welcome, Natalie. Thanks for having me. Yay, where are you tuning in from today? I'm in New Orleans, Louisiana, about four blocks from the hotel. I love it. You know, it's I've not been to New Orleans. It is my dream, and I am a huge jazz fan, and I've never been to New Orleans. It's Well, this is the, the crucible, the birthplace. You'll have to come by, and there's all kinds of beautiful places to see jazz walking distance from the hotel, so you'll have to come and stay with us. Oh, my God, I want to so bad. It's um, I lived in New York for a while, and it was my... My church, we're going to like the jazz clubs. I mean, mostly Django at the Roxy Hotel, which I still go to. It's my place. But um, I'm really excited about today's episode because it's going to be more like a case study. So, Natalie, you've built an incredible boutique hotel, probably some of the most beautiful interiors that I've ever seen in a hotel in my life. It is just incredible what you've built. And I know a lot of our listeners know about your hotel and would want to know know more. So let's just start with that. So let's talk about where did the idea for Hotel Peter and Paul come about? Talk to us about that journey. Great. And thank you for the kind words. So the idea from the hotel came about because 10 years ago, when we were just getting started, New Orleans was a very different hotel town. Uh, New Orleans has become an excellent hotel town, but about 10 years ago, uh, guests coming to stay here had the choice between very small B and B's in different residential neighborhoods, maybe two to five rooms, mm-hmm. or on the flip side, big box hotels, Sheraton, Hilton, Hyatt, mm-hmm. Marriott, and so on. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't that sweet spot that I look for when I travel mm-hmm. of a hotel with very high standards of design and service, but that still feels very rooted in place. Mm-hmm and very much has a sense of place. And I felt like that was what I was looking for as a travel, that was traveler, that was very much what people were more and more looking for as travelers. And it felt like there was an opportunity there. In addition, tourism was very 
limited to the French Quarter, which is mm-hmm. New Orleans's traditional um, tourism neighborhood. Yeah. And it's a beautiful place. But to me, what's special about New Orleans is it extends far beyond the borders of the French Quarter. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I first moved here 15 years ago, I lived in the Marigny, where I still live, in fact, in the house that, where I still live. And I just felt like if I was traveling to New Orleans, this is where I would want to be. And mm-hmm. so initially, I started looking for a hotel that was 20 to 25 rooms was mm-hmm. what I felt like I could afford and what I felt like I could manage. And um, and then I kind of came upon the space that became the Hotel Peter and Paul, this gorgeous four building set of eight buildings from the 1800s, a former mm-hmm. school, Catholic school, rectory, church and convents in um in total in a totally dilapidated state Mm -hmm. so the project the buildings were amazing but the project was much bigger than anything i could afford or manage on my own and so i started speaking with ash nyc a hotel Mm -hmm. developer that had recently opened their first property in providence rhode island that was very similar in style and scope to what i was you know what my vision was in new orleans in terms of working with local artisans and feeling rooted in place and so Um, So my partners, uh, we became partners and we pursued this property. And uh, after about five years of development, we were able to open it as the Hotel Peter and Paul. And that was about five years ago that we've been open now. Wow. Oh, my. I'm just like, I'm also just so blown away, though, with what you've created. And I think that, you know, I love Ash because they're they're Ash now. It's just Ash. I think they've rebranded. Yeah, I think I'm probably saying it wrong. Yes, let's call it Ash. <laughs> yeah, see? Oh, my God, Ari. See, I'm, like, looking out for you. <laughs> but I want to know. I kind of want to go back, though, because obviously this was, like, a match made in heaven. But, like, how do, how do you get to that point? Like, building that, finding Ash, finding Ari and his team, and then, like, building that relationship and really, really fostering um, a great partnership. Yeah. So the way the relationship came about is that my sister and I both went to college in Providence, Rhode Island, where mm-hmm. Ari is from and where their first hotel, the Dean, was opened. Yep. And my sister and Ari are, are trained as urban planners and they worked together in oh, their first job. It wow. was Ari's first job and it was my sister was a, a senior in college and it was her internship. Oh and um, and so when I was working on this hotel project, she mm-hmm. said, oh, you really should meet my old colleague, Ari, who just opened a hotel in Providence that sounds very similar to what your goals are mm-hmm. for your place in New Orleans. So Ari and I started talking and he said, you know, we're very interested in New Orleans. We're ready for our next project, but we don't know anybody down there. We don't know the lay of the land. I had spent about a year looking at different pieces of real estate, um, doing different business models for mm-hmm smaller hotels for when mm. it was just my own project. Mm-hmm. And, but by that time, um, the hotel Peter, well, the, the Saints Peter and Paul church and school complex was on my radar. Um, a, a neighbor of mine had bought the buildings off the archdiocese, but didn't want to redevelop the buildings himself. Mm. And, um, and so I said, yeah, come down, let's look at some stuff together. And, um, when Ari saw the buildings, he was like, this is it, this is it. And I had a million reasons why I thought it wasn't going to work because I had lived in the neighborhood for long enough to see that the neighborhood association was very powerful Mm. and very opposed to redevelopment. And so I just assumed Mm. that we would be limited to properties that were already commercially zoned on the kind of fringes of the neighborhood Mm -hmm. because I just thought the zoning battle would be too too uphill and too steep. And, And Ari said, okay, I I hear what you're saying, but let's think about ways that we can get the neighborhood on board and let's at Mm. least try. Yeah. So we, the the owners of the buildings knew that they weren't going to be able to 
uh, get the higher price that they wanted for it mm. unless there was a rezoning because it was zoned as a single family home, mm-hmm. but it was like 75,000 square feet. And nobody was going to turn that yeah. into a single family home. Yeah. So they agreed to give us uh, three months option to buy mm-hmm. the property for for the first three months were free where they weren't going to sell it to anybody else. We had the exclusive right to sort of hmm. um, have the option to buy the property while mm-hmm. we did some initial poking around to see if we thought the zoning change would be successful. And then after three months, we would have to put some hard money down that we would lose if we walked away. Hmm. And after six months, we would have to put some more substantial hard money down that we would lose if we walked away. But we felt that three to six months was the time that we needed to figure out whether this was going to work. Yeah. And so we we took the offer we took the option and um, immediate, immediately started meeting with people in the neighborhood, in the neighborhood association, mm-hmm. the neighbors to try to figure out what their appetite was for mm-hmm. us redeveloping this space into a hotel. We were required to have one public meeting. We had five. I sat down wow. with probably 50 people at the cafe on the corner one on one and to just address their concerns, listen to what they had to say, tweak the plan. And mm-hmm. so we, we really thought about what what they would want. And so because a lot of them are active preservationists, we said, okay, mm. we're not going to demolish any existing historic buildings. I mean, mm-hmm. as it turned out, our our visions were pretty aligned because as preservationists ourselves, we also didn't want to destroy any historic buildings. We said, we're not going to build any new buildings. Mm-hmm. Uh, parking was a big concern, but the property actually comes with a pretty large parking lot. So we were able to say, look, if you turn this into apartments, everybody's going to have one or two cars, whereas a hotel, most people will take a taxi or an Uber mm-hmm. or car share or whatever. Um, and um, crucially, the church which prior development proposals had suggested chopping up into units. We were like, we don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. We want to keep it as an event space, as a gathering space, as a community Mm -hmm. space. So we're not going to chop it up. And so those were kind of the four planks of our platform. And I think people knew that the place was going to get redeveloped by somebody because Mm -hmm. it was, you know, a lot of land that was just falling apart and they didn't want to just see demolition by neglect. So they were like, okay, we'll take a chance on these guys. You know, she lives in the neighborhood. Um, she's responsive. Mm-hmm. She's available. And uh, and so they supported us. And with their wow. support, it, it made it much easier to get the zoning change that we needed and everything else that needed to happen for the hotel to open. How how long did that take to really convince the locals? It took about six months. Yeah. Hmm. took about six months. And one of the deadlines was that um, I was going to have a baby. <laughs> so I was like, all right, we need to get this done before the baby comes. Um, and, and we did. We, we got it done. So that that helped pave the way for then acquiring the property, designing the property, financing, construction, mm-hmm. and finally opening. And now a word from our sponsor. Solanus is an intuitive property management system powered by a business intelligence engine, offering the hospitality industry a single robust solution for managing hotels, resorts, vacation rentals, and corporate housing. Its ease of use, streamlined onboarding, and 24-7 support make it the preferred PMS solution. Headquartered in San Diego, Solanus is the vision of hospitality experts and technologists who believe it is time for a new era in property management. Ready to discover how they can work with you to elevate your property? Visit solanis.com to get started. And now back to the show. How much do you think it played a part that you were also a local in getting their approval? I mean, I think it was everything. I think it was huge. I do not think it would have worked Hmm. if not for that. 
That's really interesting. Yeah. Okay. So and now- I'm still local. I still live in the same house, four blocks from the property. Everyone has my cell phone and is not afraid to use it. And I think it's a big reason <laughs> wow. why it's been, you know, it's a true neighborhood project. Um, huh. We, you know, we had a free block party last week that oh. hundreds of people attended. Um, you know, it really has become a beloved neighborhood institution. And mm-hmm. I think it's because our ties to the neighborhood are genuine. Our outreach is genuine and our effort is genuine. Oh, I love I love hearing this because I think that this is truly the role a hotel needs to have, especially now, because places are getting gentrified like no tomorrow. But a lot of these owners and developers, I'm honestly or don't have this mindset that you're talking about right now that don't have this perspective that I think is very important moving forward that in our industry we really need to like take a step back and get to our our why um so this is really interesting to hear now I want to talk about the whole financing journey so like where how are you able to fund the hotel Honestly, that was probably the most difficult part of the development process. Yeah. We really underestimate we really underestimated the appetite of the local banking community for a project like ours. Oh, we have seventy one guest rooms. Mm-hmm. They felt like that was too small. They they were more comfortable with think with room with projects that were bigger than a hundred rooms, which mm-hmm. you know would have been great. Except that we were it's these historic buildings, so there's you know we were kind of bounded by the limits of what was possible within the buildings. Yeah. They didn't like that it was in the Marigny. They a lot of them hadn't been there in decades, and they um, they were like, why would anybody want to stay in the Marigny? Not mm-hmm. really knowing that there's tons of Airbnbs in the Marigny, and that it is a mm-hmm. place that people were coming to stay. And so we felt like there was would be a demand for a, a hotel in that neighborhood. They didn't like the fact that it was unflagged. They were way more comfortable with a you know, Marriott Mm -hmm. or Sheraton or something like that. And so the first time we went around, every bank in New Orleans said no. I think we went to 14 banks and they all said no. Mm -hmm. And so uh, it took us about a year and a half to get financed, which was very stressful because we're paying insurance, we're paying, you know, we're accumulating equity to our investors because by that point we had purchased the property and we had done some initial initial demolition work. So um, we just thought, well, oh my gosh, is this maybe not going to happen for us? And so we ended up making it work by going back to the banks with a smaller ask and raising some other funds through mm. uh, privately, like through a mm-hmm. mezzanine loan, which was at higher interest. So it made the property yeah. more expensive or made the whole project financing mm-hmm. more expensive. But, you know, waiting forever and ever is expensive as well. Mm-hmm. So we just we got it done. And then um, and then it was pretty pretty quickly we started construction and and that ended on time and were able to open but there there was this year and a half that we kind of lost because mm-hmm. it took so long to get financed to close the financing yep i'm hearing that all the time and did you see my 15 eye rolls when you were talking about the banks and they're like it has to be over 100 rooms and like it has to be with the mm-hmm. chain because we feel more comfortable but this was 10 years ago right when you were going to the banks yeah. That's right. Well, I guess it was maybe eight years ago. Eight years ago. I think Mm -hmm. I'm hoping I think a lot has changed since then. I mean, this last year has been a really has been a bit hard because we're like, are we in a recession? Are we not? And the banks are like, yes, we are. We're going to move forward as if we are. And then um, getting financing, I know, for this past year for a lot of owners has been like impossible. And now they're now I think that there's other options out there. There's like more on the private equity side. And I want to see more of that angel investment also come into this space for 
independent boutique hotels as well. That's like kind of my goal. That's like my career goals. I really want to be an angel investor <laughs> for independent boutique hotels. So maybe I'm biased about that. But I think as an industry, we're starting to get more creative with our financing. But I also think that the big institutions are understanding the success that independent boutique hotels are having and that that's what travelers want. Um, I think it's easier for them to see it in numbers when they're like, here's the reports. Here's like, you know, here's like a nice report with numbers, which I know is what they need. But I do think it's slowly shifting. But yeah, those 15 eye rolls were like what I've heard so many (laughs) times over Mm -hmm. these last 10 years. Um, But I want to talk about now let's get into you've got this finance, you're getting everything um, constructed. What hurdles did um, came about under the construction process? Well, when you're renovating a historic property, you never know what you're going to find. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> there's just a lot of uncertainty in it. You 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 rip off some some sheetrock and you're like, "Oh, wow, it's termites over here." Or oh, lovely. you know, this was this was kind of like haphazardly done and there's no um like foundation under Mm -hmm. this addition, things like that, that we discovered, but we worked with a really good architect and a really good contractor. Mm -hmm. So I would say that compared with the rezoning um, difficulties and the financing difficulties, the actual construction part of the project was, you know, as it kind of went more or less as expected. I mean, of course it's stressful and there's a million things to tie up and do, especially since we had like pretty complicated finishes, pretty, Mm -hmm. um, you know, like design needs that were not typical. Mm -hmm. And we were working with a contractor who had not at that time done a lot of complicated design finishes, Mm -hmm. but um, they, they were able to get it done and and we worked through it. So I want to ask like on the design side, did you stick to budget? Cause it's like the design is so like the detail I can just tell from the photos. It's incredible. (laughs) I'm wondering. (laughs) Thank you. Um, We, we went a little bit over, <laughs> we went a little bit over budget, mm-hmm. but not crazy. Okay. But I mean, we had a very big budget <laughs> for design. <laughs> so to begin we with. Knew that that was what was going to set us far. Actually, one uh, funny anecdote about where we went over budget was yeah. that when we were sketching out the design budget, you know, we had a certain amount of square footage for curtains everywhere, mm-hmm. but yeah. actually we're blessed with some gigantic windows, ah. like double height or whatever. And mm-hmm. so when it came time to measure and buy fabric for and cut and make yeah. all the curtains, we were like, oh, wow, we really underestimated this because we had just <laughs> like a lot more window height to reckon with and, you know, the back of the napkin calculations that yep. went into the budget. Those windows can get you. Yeah, and I will say there was also, you know, when we opened, there were a few things that we thought were going to work, you know, Mm -hmm. on paper when we were designing, but that were operationally, like, in dysfunctional. And so in our first year, we did spend time kind of like fixing mistakes and having to pay for, you know, to Mm -hmm. do certain things over again that we hadn't anticipated, but that we just needed to do. Another thing that happened was we have a lot of vintage furniture. And when Mm -hmm. we first opened, a ton of it broke right away. And I was like, oh my God, (gasps) like, we really can't proceed at this rate. You know, these chairs and stools and stuff that had lasted through revolutions and regime changes for hundreds of years. And they had to like meet their sad end in a New Orleans hotel. But actually it was all the weak stuff that broke really quickly in the first, you know, month or two. And then everything else, of course we have furniture that breaks, but it's, it is at a sustainable pace now because the stuff that's, that's remained has, um, 
it's like the strong stuff, I guess. Yeah. Oh, that's that's so funny, though, what you said. It's like it stood the test of time, but then yeah. it couldn't make the first year. I know. Until, <laughs> it, until it met the bachelorette party. You know, it came to New Orleans on a Friday night. <laughs> oh, my God. The way that's so funny. Um, I want. And then so you've built this incredible hotel. How did you build your team when you first opened? Well, um, I'm trying to think. We we basically looked for people who wanted to be part of something special, something different, mm-hmm. something that was rooted in history and neighborhood based, but also, you know, really took into account the guests. I mean, I think because we're a little bit off the beaten path, mm-hmm. people come to us because they're looking to be with us. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't do a lot of OTA bookings. It's really people mm. who are who've heard of us or, who, or a lot of repeat guests at this point, people who've come before and loved it, and wanted to come back. And so we really want to be a portal to New Orleans, very knowledgeable and being mm. able to share information about what to do here or what we think they're going to like, provide recommendations. Mm-hmm. So we were looking for people who love customer and guest relations and um, and would really be good ambassadors for the city. Oh, I think that's a beautiful perspective to be ambassadors of the city. I I love that. We still have people at the hotel who who opened the hotel with us. Really? I mean, obviously the pandemic, I think we'd have more if the pandemic hadn't occurred Mm -hmm. because that was a really like devastating shakeup. But yeah, we do have some people who have been with us since the beginning. Oh, that's so beautiful to hear. It's that loyalty and obviously the culture, what Mm -hmm. you and Ash have created, like as a culture that people feel like they belong in. So I think that's beautiful. Wait, I want to get to this like OTA conversation. So most of your bookings are not coming through an OTA. They're coming directly to you. The majority of our bookings are direct bookings. Wow. Okay. I just needed to like read. We needed to say that one more time because my. Yeah. And then the percentage goes down every year and we, and we like that. We encourage it. It means that we're doing something right. Yes. In the beginning, you don't really have your name. You, you're insecure. Mm-hmm. You want to get your books full because yep. you've just opened and you need that churn to generate that revenue. So you're mm-hmm. like, yeah, come, come, you know, whoever wants to come, come on in, come on yep. in. But, um, you know, we prefer the customer who wants to come to us directly. And so we, yeah, the, the more we can, and of course you have to pay a big commission to the OTAs that yep. you don't, if you're getting that direct customer. So mm-hmm. we do still, we are still on the, on, on the OTAs on booking.com and Expedia and stuff like that. But the less we can, the more we can reduce our dependence on them, the better mm-hmm. it is for the hotel's bottom line, but the better it is for the guest experience as well, because they're getting yep. our well-formatted welcome emails and confirmation emails and things like that, as mm-hmm. opposed to being mediated through a third party. Well, absolutely. And it's like, you know, even for me, which I have used third parties when I'm like, you know, especially when I'm traveling traveling around Asia, more like backpacking style, like that works really well. But you know why it works really well is because I'm looking for a deal. And that's kind of the mindset that I think is a big struggle with OTAs as well, is that you're getting a lot of customers who are coming to look for a deal. Not all the time, but a lot of the time. And then, you know, I've worked front desk a few times and it's like, I I was always like, dang, it's always the Expedia client that is complaining the most and is never happy with any room that we are giving them and all that. So it's also, I think, a different type of customer. Because if they're going directly to you, it's because they want to go to your hotel. 
not right. because I need to be in and New Orleans. And that's the customer we want, right? Exactly. Want who is happy to not be in the French Quarter. You know, sometimes yes. as an OTA customer, they show up and they're like, where am I? Where mm-hmm. is the French Quarter? And we're like, uh, well, it's not far, but you booked a hotel <laughs> that wasn't in the French Quarter. And if, if people don't realize that, they, they yeah. can be upset about it. Interesting. Okay. I loved that we're, we're actually out of time, but I want to ask you one last question, which is, so boutique hotel ownership, it is by far the harder journey when you um, enter the hospitality industry. It requires a lot of passion and love for what you do. So why did you go down this journey of boutique hotel ownership? Um, well, I just think New Orleans is such a special place and mm-hmm. we do survive on tourism. It's mm-hmm. a huge part of our local economy, mm-hmm. but I, what I wanted to bring to the city was, uh, an offer to the traveler that mm-hmm. would hopefully help them engage with the city in a sustainable way, in a mm-hmm. respectful way, and in a way that was kind of ed- so we don't beat people over the head with it, but we we offer those opportunities for those who want to take them up. Mm-hmm. And um, and so, yeah, I feel like that's one of the things I'm really passionate about is is sharing this city um, mm-hmm. with people in a way where they can appreciate idiosyncrat- idiosyncrasies and, and subtleties of it. You're a true local, Natalie. <laughs> I don't know. I've been here 15 years, but, you know, to be a yeah. true local, I feel like it's like fourth generation, you know? Oh, my. Yes, but it's like. But yes. I do love it. It feels like home for sure. And but also I think it's like what you just said. I wasn't expecting you to say when you were like when I asked you, why do you want to become a boutique hotel owner? I usually get other answers when you said it's like your love for the place that you live in. I don't know. But that, that that's yeah. that's a local who loves where she lives. And I think that's really it's the beautiful. Truth. It's the truth. Oh, I love that. Thank you, Natalie, for tuning in. Thank you, Ariel. It's been a pleasure. I'll come visit you, I promise. Please do. Please do. Our doors are open. (laughs) Thanks, Natalie. Have a beautiful day. All right. Thanks for listening to The Unfamiliar Shift with Ariella. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review. Let us know what you think. To learn more about the world of boutique hospitality, be sure to check out our website, bla.org. And thank you to Solanas for sponsoring today's show. 